0: Pepperidge Farm Milano. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's podcast is brought to you by Tracker. Listeners to this show get a special discount of 30% off your entire order. Go to the spelled T-H-E tracker dot com and enter code history. The hardest thing you'll ever have to find is their website. Go to the tracker dot com right now and enter promo code history for 30% off your entire order. Again, that's the tracker dot com promo code history. Are you looking for brand new episodes of a short How Stuff Works podcast that explains the everyday world around us? Then check out Brain Stuff with me, Christian Sager. New episodes hit every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm Tracy B. Wilson, and we are still in the Halloween season, which makes me happy in my dark little heart. Uh, <laughs> and I, I accidentally started a witch theme, but uh, that's not going to last. Uh, just the two witch episodes: this one and the Bell Witch. And the Bell Witch really doesn't even count in that regard. But today's episode is legitimately about witch trials, uh, an actual. A, accusations of witchcraft. Uh, And Europe's witchcraft trials spanned three centuries from roughly 1450 to 1750. But it was really during the late 16th and 17th centuries that the practice of trying people as witches was most fervent. And from about 1570 to 1680, it's estimated, and this is a pretty wide uh, gap of where the estimate falls, that between 40,000 and 60,000 people across Europe were tried for sorcery of some form, and most of them were found guilty and put to death. Uh, I've seen the the fraction of like approximately two thirds, but it's hard because there wasn't great record keeping to identify exactly how many uh, lost their lives because of this. In one particular town, uh, this is a, an episode heavy in Norwegian words, which I have no doubt I will butcher. Uh, yeah, even even having looked at pronunciations. <laughs> for them. A lot of the phonemes are not used in English and so replicating them yeah. is a stretch. So no upfront that we will probably butcher it. And we mean no disrespect to the Norwegian language. Our mouths just will not do it. Uh so we're gonna talk about Varda, which is uh a fishing village. It was known as Norway's witch capital, and it was the site of a long series of quite brutal inquests. And there were generally two different kinds of witchcraft trials in Norway through this time period. There were isolated trials where one person was brought before the court and tried for sorcery. Uh, like just one person at a time would pop up and seem suspicious. And then there were panics where groups of people were tried in rapid succession in a very short period of time. And whereas the isolated trials had more to do with an individual person practicing witchcraft or some sort of sorcery, these panics were driven by the idea that demons were involved usually, and that groups of witches were consorting with the devil. So today, we're going to talk about two of the panics that took place in Varda, Norway. Uh, and first, we're going to give you a little bit of geographical context about the area. So Varda sits in Finnmark County. It is Norway's only town that's in the Arctic climate zone and offers views of the Norwegian-Russian Arctic. It's a really small coastal village. There are fewer than 2,500 inhabitants. It's northern Norway's oldest town, with settlements dating back as far as 9,000 years. And in the 1300s, uh, both a church and Varda fortress were built there, and the town sort of grew up around primarily the fortress. And despite the brutal weather, the fishing along the coast of Finnmark was plentiful, and the location offered really, really um, lucrative trade opportunities. Even today, I mean, this is remote. Its relative isolation is one of the reasons that Finnmark's witch trials were so expedient. Copenhagen, which under Danish rule was Norway's capital, was far enough away that the local authorities of Finnmark basically got to act independently, There was such a big geographical distance from any higher authority that the decisions to execute witches were basically made with total conviction and then the sentences were carried out without hesitation. There was no, like, Norwegian, uh, version of, of, like, the Department of Justice overseeing the witch trial situation in Finnmark. Correct. Uh, But the directives to to prosecute witches came from very high because during some of this time from 1588 to 1648, the ruler of the Danish Norwegian kingdom was King Christian IV. And he had an agenda when it came to witches. Yeah, I should say there that like, even if there had been an equivalent of the Justice Department Mm. (laughs) overseeing the witch trial situation, it would not have had the effect of preventing the execution of witches. And the officials of the crown at this time, who served under Christian IV, were basically charged with the task of ridding the country of witches, and they were very committed to this job. So it's not surprising that there was a level of comfort in acting with this complete authority in cases cases of witchcraft at the local level. From the late 16th century into the 17th century, Vardo, which is a small village, as we said, staged 140 different trials. And in 91 documented cases, the accused was found guilty and put to death either by burning or by torture. Most of these happened in clusters where many people were prosecuted over very short periods of time. And the numbers here get really interesting because during the time of these witch hunts, less than 1% of Norway's population lived in the Finnmark area where these trials took place. But this remote fishing community was home to 31% of the witch executions in Norway. So disproportionately large numbers of people were being charged and punished by death for being witches. In Finnmark, there were 111 women and 24 men accused of sorcery. Of the 91 put to death, 77 were women and 14 were men. And the Sami people, which is an indigenous Scandinavian culture, which uh, still exists today, were some of the first to be targeted in this witch panic. Uh, They had been the first known people to live in Finnmark, but as that area colonized, they became the minority. Approximately 80% of those accused of witchcraft in Finnmark were Norwegian. 20% were Sami. When considering gender, though, these numbers skew in a totally different way. Of the 24 men who were accused of witchcraft in the area, 16 were from the Sami people. At least 13 of those 16 were found guilty and executed. And that disparity in proportions is likely due, according to historian Liv Helene Willemson, who is kind of an expert on uh, this area of study to the fact that Sami men in particular had a reputation for sorcery throughout Europe. And this is linked probably to some of their cultural practices. For example, uh, they used... This, uh, they, they would do this ritual where they used rune drums, where they were basically kind of doing chants. And people went, Oh, that must be evil. Uh, it wasn't. It's just part of their culture. And in 1609, King Christian IV wrote a letter to his district governors that they should persecute Sami sorcerers without mercy. And that really catalyzed Finnmark's witch hunting phase. So, while the trials of the 17th century might have primarily affected Norwegian women, it does appear that bias against the Sami people really started things. In the early 1600s, Sami were targeted more frequently, and then the trials transitioned to focus on the women of Finnmark. And part of the mindset that led to this witch panic was the idea, common in the 16th and 17th centuries, that the far north of the European continent, including the coast of Norway, Uh, was sort of home to the devil. This idea appears to have been born of a tangle of ideologies and fears. For one, although Christianity had spread throughout Europe, there were still people, including those in the northern fringes, who didn't practice it, which drew a lot of suspicion from the church. Additionally, this was and still is a place where the climate can be incredibly punishing, and that stormy nature was attributed to sorcery. The icy cold winds from the north were believed to originate at the devil's home and to be a conveyance of the devil's will, of sorcery, and of evil spirits. And these spirits, of course, specialized in nautical dark magic. These were not just locally held ideas. Many areas of Europe, including France, England, Sweden, Germany, and Scotland, were home to people who believed that Norway was virtually riddled with witches. And the mountain of Domen, uh, which sat between two fishing villages, was believed to be the site of the entrance to a tunnel that went directly to hell. And a cave within that mountain was reportedly the genesis point for various demons who then spread from there throughout the European continent. So we're about to get into these panics, but first we're going to pause for a quick word from one of our sponsors. Hey, it is fine to own up to the fact that you don't want to make extraneous stops on the way home to go stand in line at the grocery store and look for ingredients and do all of those things. We sure don't. No, I never want, I get real crabby when I have to make an extra stop. Uh, and takeout, while it can be a delicious indulgence, is not always better. It's often expensive and the nutrition is not always an A plus. So that is where Blue Apron comes in. Blue Apron will deliver farm fresh ingredients and step-by-step recipes directly to your home, letting you create healthy handcrafted meals right there in your own kitchen without having to go to the grocery store. Uh, For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron sends you all of your ingredients, perfectly proportioned. You're basically ready to cook right out of the gate without having to do a whole big mise-en-place situation. No trips to the grocery store, you won't waste unused ingredients, plus you really get to play around with some ingredients you might not otherwise have found on your own. They work around your schedule and your dietary preferences so that you will get yummy and fun meals. One of the upcoming ones is a spiced pork burger, which basically anytime they send a pork burger, my husband gets really excited. So you too can cook incredible meals. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free by going to blueapron.com slash history. That is really and for true our treat. Just go there and get your three free meals on us when you go to blueapron.com slash history. So back to Finnmark in the 1620s. Uh, as with any of history's witchcraft persecution episodes, sorcery was often the scapegoat for difficult or tragic events that happened in any community. And Finnmark experienced a really terrible storm uh, one Christmas early on in the 17th century. So the unexpected 1617 Christmas Eve storm hit when 16 boats from Varda and seven boats from uh, Khyberg, I'm sure I'm saying that terribly wrong, so I apologize, uh, were all at sea. And 10 of those boats capsized and 40 fishermen were drowned. Struggling to cope with the loss of so many of the village's men at one time, members of the community started to point to witchcraft as the cause of this tragedy. The population of both villages combined was less than 300 people, so 40 deaths really did have a massive impact on the community. And this incident eventually catalyzed a piece of legislation that allowed for mass prosecutions, specifically in the charge of witchcraft. And it actually took a long time to enact that law and get it up and running. While it was first introduced in October 1617, it really wasn't enforced until 1620. This ability meant that there was one of those instances where a lot of people, both men and women, faced charges of witchcraft and were found guilty. So in January of 1621, during the anti-sorcery proceedings, a woman appeared at the trials and claimed that witches had indeed tied knots in the fishing nets and cast spells on them. Her name was Elsa Knut's daughter, and she detailed how a group of witches had tied three knots in a piece of string. They had cursed the knots and then spit on them. And then as those knots were untied, that curse was activated, and the sea consequently claimed the lives of those fishermen. She herself was accused of witchcraft and was thrown into the sea to see if she floated this is all too common and pretty foolish practice. The thinking was that the water, which was believed to be a sacred element, would repel evil, which was why witches floated. Elsa floated, dooming herself to a guilty verdict, and then she was put to death. In February of 1621, another woman, Lars daughter, testified before the court. And initially, she refused to speak, and she was, like Elsa, thrown into the sea for the water test. But after this test began, she readily confessed. And this was framed at the time as the water test having released her from the devil's spell. She claimed that when she had been questioned earlier, the devil had silenced her tongue. And when she did speak, she said that she had met with the devil on Christmas Eve of 1617. She went on to say that she had that evening flown through the air alongside the devil and that he had taken her from one village to another where a total of 40 witches had gathered to celebrate the Sabbath. After these events, she went back to her home. Mari Jorgen's daughter also testified, and she said that the devil had visited her on Christmas Eve and asked if she would serve him and then took her to the home of Kirstie Soren's daughter. Kirstie, according to Mari's testimony, cast a spell on her that transformed her into a raven, enabling her to quickly make the journey to the gathering where the knot curse was performed. Mari gave added information that a similar Christmas Eve Sabbath had happened in the time between the 1617 tragedy and the 1621 trials on Christmas Eve 1620. And Kirstie Soren's daughter figured prominently in a lot of the testimony. She was characterized by others on trial as the leader of the group. And she was also one of the last women who testified in the 1621 trials, and she had witnessed how things had played out for those that had faced the court before her. Under threat of torture, she confirmed what the other women had said about their rituals, dooming herself to be burned at the stake. During her court appearance, Kirsty named two men who had also participated in the rituals. While men were tried for witchcraft in Norway during all this time, neither of the men that she named were formally accused. But if legal records of later trials are taken at face value, because there, there are records of all of these proceedings that are uh, apparently pretty well, um, maintained. They're in pretty good shape, but they are, they're literally like on file. Uh, there in Norway, see, so they're not online or anything. But they basically like lay out as though this, this is a legal document, these are legal proceedings, all of these things that we're talking about today. So there is a record of all of these trials. Uh, and if they are taken at face value, there were still practicing witches in Finnmark for decades after the many deaths of the 1621 trials. And while more than 10 women were put to death in 1621, a series of trials in the 1660s would claim even more lives. In late 1662, more than 30 were accused of sorcery in a series of trials that played out into 1663. Among the accused were not just adult women, but also young girls under the age of 12. And most of the testimonies in this case were confessions that were tortured out of women uh, and threatened out of children who said that they had met and celebrated with the devil at Domen, which we mentioned earlier. During the trial, several of the accused said that they had traveled Domen's pathway to hell and that it was a long black valley with a boiling lake at the bottom. And one of the children victimized in these trials was Ingeborg Iver's daughter, who was found guilty of sorcery because of her association with two women and another girl and their Christmas Eve 1662 activities. So that day... Ivor's daughter and a woman named Solvi Nils' daughter were actually in custody for suspected witchcraft. They were imprisoned at Vardahus fortress. But according to testimony given before the court, they turned into cats, escaped the fortress, and met with the devil outside the gates. And then the devil took them uh, to one of these witch meetings. And it's there that they met the other woman and girl that were involved in this particular accusation in the testimony. And after much carousing and celebrating, the devil then returned them to the fortress. Ingeborg had the unhappy distinction of being the first child accused of witchcraft in Finnmark when she appeared at her trial on January 26, 1663. Her exact age is unknown, but she was described in court records as, quote, a little girl. Her mother had already been burned for witchcraft. And she had said that her mother taught her witchcraft by giving her a tainted bowl of milk. There was this perception at the time that witchcraft was conveyed often through tainted food or drink. And that's how you you passed it on from one generation to the next. And then uh, the devil, after she had had this tainted milk, the devil was conjured by her mother in the form of a black dog. And that dog bit her repeatedly. And this same sort of narrative was described by the other five girls as well, being given like a tainted, usually milk, and then this black dog devil coming in and sort of attacking them as a form of trial. And while to the court at the time... This may have indicated truthfulness. Each girl's testimony validated what had come before because they were pretty consistent. But it also suggests that perhaps they had simply heard the same tale over and over from somewhere. And we're going to get to a possible source of that tale in just a moment. We're also going to go into a bit more detail about the Vardahus fortress and some of the people who were held there as captives. But before we do, we are going to stop one more time for a very brief sponsor break. Trips to the post office never convenient. <laughs> no, and I even have one close, but it's still a pain in the tuchus. <laughs> well, and I, I genuinely enjoy the walk down to the local post office from where I live. It's a nice little walk, but I mean, I just don't have time. So, fortunately, you can get postage right from your desk with Stamps.com. Stamps.com even gives you special postage discounts that you can't get at the post office, including First Class, Priority Mail, Express, International, and more. You'll never pay full price for postage again. Using your own computer and printer, you buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then you just hand your mail off to the person who delivers it to you, or you can drop it in a mailbox. It is that easy There's no wonder that more than 600,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com. Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for this special offer. That's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Get started with Stamps.com today. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com and enter STUFF. So that holding situation that we mentioned before the break in Vardahus Fortress, which you will also sometimes see translated as Vardahus Castle, was where most of the torture used to elicit confessions took place. And there was this single room called the Witch's Hole. Uh where sort of these these torturous events happened. And while the use of torture was technically illegal before a sentence was passed on a prisoner, it was still used uh, both before the sentence to gain confessions, and then after sentencing, there would be more torture to produce names of accomplices. One of the interesting factors in this panic is the influence of two people, a husband and a wife, on the confessions of the accused. This pair, Ambrosius Rodius and Anne Friederstatter Rosius, had been imprisoned near modern-day Oslo before being moved to Vardhus Fortress. Ambrosius was an astrologer and a physician who was considered politically dangerous after having made some accurate predictions about military conflicts. And his wife Anne, who was the granddaughter of King Frederick II, had some sort of serious argument with political figures in their hometown. So yeah, they were moved to Vardhus. Uh, because they were considered basically enemies of the state at that point. Uh, and because the fortress was kind of crowded in this 1660s panic, at least one of the children imprisoned there shared quarters with the Rhodius couple. And additionally, Anne had a key to the witch's hole. And it's documented that Anne spoke with both the women and girls who were being held in the fortress awaiting trial, and that she talked at length with them about demonology and that she encouraged their confessions. On the upside, all six of the little girls involved in the 1662-1663 to panic were acquitted on the grounds that they were too young to be held accountable for their actions, and that they had undoubtedly been influenced by the adult witches around them. And over the course of the 1660 series of accusations and trials, we mentioned that uh, 30 people had been accused. Two women died while being tortured for information before they could be sentenced, and 20 others were sentenced, found guilty, and burned at the stake. In 2011, the country of Norway made a significant gesture of apology and recognition of the 91 people known to have been executed for witchcraft. Peter Zumthor, an architect from Switzerland, and Louise Bourgeois, a French-American artist, worked together to design a memorial for the lives that were lost. So this Stilneset memorial sits on a piece of remote coastline on the Barents Sea, believed to be the site of many of the executions. And the architect's contribution to the work, which is titled Memory Hall, looks like a 158-yard or 145-meter-long corridor built at the edge of the sea. But instead of exterior walls, it has an open cross-hatched frame. That frame, which is made of pine, supports a tunnel-like silk cocoon. And the, within the fabric tunnel is a hallway with oak floors. Within the interior are 91 lamps, and each of them illuminates a window that represents one of the executed. And an engraving dedicated to one of the people killed for witchcraft, including the testimony that was used against them. The second part of the memorial, which can be entered by visitors once they have passed through that long, tight memorial corridor, is Bourgeois' creation, and it's entitled The Damned, the Possessed, and the Beloved. And this element is a black glass room, and inside there is a chair in the center that burns continuously, and there are three mirrors mounted above it to create the illusion of the space being consumed in fire. So it's kind of a unique thing. I can't I I don't know of many other countries that have done anything like this. It's quite beautiful. There's some really good pictures online, uh, and we'll have links to those in the show notes, but it it's an interesting testament to um how things have changed in their their efforts to kind of they obviously cannot fix what has gone before, but to at least acknowledge the wrongs that were done and and how misguided the attempts to rid the the country of evil through witchcraft trials were. So that's the uh the Varta witch trials. Oh, witch trials. Like people have such a fascination with witch trials. But they're depressing. <laughs> they're so depressing. <laughs> they are. It breaks my heart if you if you read about, you know, these little girls, I yeah. mean children that were being forced to testify sometimes alongside their mothers and sometimes after their mothers had already been killed. And it's there's such brutality to it and it's rough. Do you have some listener mail? That's less. I do. It's actually fantastic. Oh, good. Uh- Yeah, it's very upbeat and peppy, if you're me especially. (laughs) It is from our listener Janet, and it is two postcards. I have a one of two and a two of two. She says, hi again, Holly and Tracy. I sent you ladies a card from Venice recently, but when I got to London and saw what the special exhibition at the Victoria and Albert was, Undressed, A History of Underwear, I knew I had to send you postcards about it. Or two, as it turns out. Uh, I have a nagging feeling you may have already gotten listener mail about this, but just in case, I'm sending, uh, some myself. This crinoline definitely made me realize afresh why they talk about making, designing underwear in terms of engineering, uh, and it's a, a lovely photograph of a cage bustle, like a cage crinoline. Oh nice. Um, and then the second one, she says, Hello again, ladies. I couldn't decide between this postcard and the one with the cage crinoline, so I'm sending them both. I knew a lot about the uh, content covered in the Undressed exhibition, thanks to my own dabbling in the history of fashion and costume design, as well as Holly's Bloomers and Beyond podcast. So it was really cool to see some examples of the underwear itself, especially corsets, etc. for pregnant women. No postcards of those. <laughs> Thank you again for all your great work. So the second one that she sent is... um Uh, a photograph of men's underwear from, uh, it's believed Britain in the 1950s, and it's just so sort of structured and uncasual in comparison to modern underwear, but you see the seeds of what modern underwear is like. So thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, Janet. These are just lovely. And I will say, um, friend of the show, Brian Young, went to see this exhibit and very sweetly brought me back an exhibition catalog, so, uh, I'm pretty much in heaven. I'm bummed that I'm not going to get to see it in person, but I'm very delighted and fortunate in that many people have sent me uh, materials from it. I feel very spoiled. oh yay, yeah yeah yeah. I mean, who doesn't want to look at pregnancy corsets? I know I do. <laughs> I love all of this stuff. Uh, anyway, so if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at com. You can also find us pretty much across the spectrum of social media as at Missed in History. That's Twitter at Missed in History, Instagram at Missed in History, Facebook.com slash Mist in History, com, and on Pinterest as Mist in History. Basically, Mist in History will find us on the internet. Uh, if you would like to do some research because you are a curious person, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type in almost anything you can think of in the search bar, and you will churn up a delightful assortment. Of links and content that you can explore and keep yourself very, very busy and informed. And you can visit us at mistinhistory.com where we have show notes for every episode since Tracy and I have been working on the podcast together as well as an archive of every episode ever of all time of Stuff You Missed in History class. So please visit us on the internet at howstuffworks.com and mistinhistory.com. more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com The future is closer than you think and it all starts in the palm of your hand You may have heard the news 5G is coming In this new iHeart series This Time Tomorrow presented by T-Mobile for Business Join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This time tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review spells help me. <laughs> <laughs> It seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini-platforms. I'm Scott Janowitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a new podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of your favorite movies, music, television, toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.